You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I, I asked myself, how could this thing stay hidden so long? Then you realize that the surface of the moon has been explored more than the deep oceans and you look at the fact that even to this day there are still large animals being discovered there have been two new species of whales discovered in just the past decade these are 30 foot 40 foot long animals that have never been seen before never been recorded giant animals found for the first time ever in just the past 10 years so yeah it's possible it's still possible to stay hidden but of course, th- this animal we found had been recorded before. We have no record, we have no scientific record of them, but there's another record. We know them. We've, we've known them all along. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Hi, this is Blake Smith, host of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Karen Stolzno's off this week, working on her new book, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But Ben Radford will be with me today as we discuss mermaids. But first, I need to do something a little bit different. Since April, I've been working for a new company, and we finally got our website up and I'm able to sell product. I like to keep Monster Talk a non-commercial product, and I'm usually disinclined to run ads and want to keep it that way as long as I can afford to. But I do want to make this one-time exception since Monster Talk really depends on this business succeeding. My company's called OfficeZilla, and we're an online office supply store. We have great prices, a huge inventory of name brand products, and Monster Talk listeners who place an order can get 15% off the whole thing by entering the coupon code MONSTERTALK at checkout. That's officezilla.com, and the coupon code is MONSTERTALK. Even if you don't need office supplies right this minute, the site has a fun free app we call Bubble Wrap Therapy. You can play for, well, for free. Uh, And the more successful OfficeZilla is, the more free time I'll have to do Monster Talk interviews. So please check out the site. And there ends my commercial. So back to mermaids. All right. This episode's a direct response to the Animal Planet movie Mermaids, The Body Found. The film appeared to be a documentary about the secret discovery of a real mermaid specimen and would have been a fine sci-fi show, but it masquerades as a real documentary and is based on thoroughly discredited ideas about human evolution. One of these ideas is called the aquatic ape theory. Technically, it's not a theory in the scientific sense, but it is colloquially known by that name. 
It could be more accurately called the aquatic ape hypothesis, or even more accurately, the thoroughly debunked and falsified aquatic ape hypothesis. But I just want to let you know, in the episode, we're going to hop back and forth on the naming convention, but we're all aware that this is not a real scientific theory. Monster talk. So, I was minding my own business the other day. (laughs) (laughs) That's how all great jokes start. So I'm there, minding my own business. When someone sent me a, uh, a, a link uh, to a video, pre-release video of uh, a, a documentary that was coming on Animal Planet, and they warned me, they said, you should watch this before it comes on the air because maybe Monster Talk could do a response. And I was really busy, but I, I stopped and started watching it, and I was just kind of shocked because it certainly looked like a documentary, but it was not a documentary. I kind of I paused it on different people and realized that the people involved were actors, not actually scientists. And then as it sort of progressed, and I'm talking about like in the first five to ten minutes, it was a really slick production. Um, but it's all about uh, the, the I guess the, the premise of the film is uh, mermaids are real and that the U.S. Navy is hiding that information uh, from the public. Yeah, I think you're referring to uh, Mermaids, The Body Found. Exactly. And uh, it it started off with what I thought from my, you know, having been in the Navy, sounded like some dubious information about the danger of sonar. Now, I I know there are some uh, studies that sonar uh, may have an impact on uh, sea life, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I was I was doubting that until they jumped into the aquatic ape theory. And then suddenly I realized, wow, this whole thing is not what I thought it was. This whole thing is uh, based on, um, I guess, uh, what's the right word here? Dis- disproven, never proven? <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly debunked, <laughs> debunked uh, spe- right, yeah, yeah. speculation. Oh. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as you pointed out, you spend a lot of time in the Navy, so you're familiar with seamen. Um, but this was <laughs> this is a whole different thing. This is These are mermaids. Um, yeah, yeah, they're and so, slightly different. Yeah, yeah. And so I can see why that, that would have, you know, sort of thrown you for a loop, as it were. Uh, I heard the same thing. I, I, I saw the, um, the Mermaids of the Body Found story and, and um, you know, I, I, my entry into it was that I was asked to write something about it because uh, the, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, had actually issued a statement um, <laughs> saying the mermaids didn't exist. And I, I first saw this on, on Sharon Hill's uh, excellent uh, site, Doubtful News, uh, a little, little blurb about that. And so that intrigued me. And so I figured, well, I should, you know, it, it's so absurd that I should do something about that. And what it turned, the story was that, that Noah had issued a statement basically saying that um, mermaids don't exist. And that, baffled me and thinking why in the world would they would they bother to do this i mean you know uh you know the, the the u.s bureau of mines doesn't issue statements saying that no dragons or trolls have been found in mines so why in the world would would noah even think that this is something they should address and so uh i, I then i sort of made the connection to the the um the, the tv show on animal planet and so i contacted my editors at discovery news where i do i do columns for them and i and I said, well, I want to write something on this. And I didn't realize at the time that uh, Animal Planet is actually a, um, a subsidiary of Discovery News. <laughs> so I, that, that made for a slightly awkward moment where I'm like, yeah, I want to tear apart this, this Animal Planet you know, pseudo-documentary. They're like, oh, that's fine. So basically I wrote a piece for, for Discovery sort of explaining the, the background on the, the Mermaid faux documentary. Um, and sort of comparing it to like, the, the Blair Witch Project or the famous alien autopsy hoax. 
uh, you know, from Fox News in 1995 when people were saying, oh, we have this, you know, this hidden, you know, top secret footage, blah, blah, blah. And so anyway, I did that piece and, um, and I just sort of, you know, gave a couple examples of, of why, uh, just from my, my quick reading of it and, and, and analysis of it, that it was clearly not true. Uh, and then it basically went on from there, and all of a sudden, my my article got picked up all over the place. And so, it was kind of funny seeing this this uh, Noah denies existence of mermaid story suddenly go everywhere. Yeah. So it was Noah drowning in inquiries. Yeah. This is. I mean, this is the sort of thing where you know, it, it, as, as a as a sort of you know. Um, cryptozoological enthusiast and you know skeptic and all these other things. I, I, I like a good story as much as the next person. I, I like horror movies. I like science fiction movies. I like fantasy. But what I don't like is this sort of deceptive blending of of fact and fiction. Uh, certainly, when it's being presented as as fact. Oh, yeah. that that I have a problem with, and that's exactly what this pseudo documentary did, and that's why I felt that I somebody needed to address it. Yeah, I, I agree. It was. Um it was partly just the fact it was on Animal Planet. I realize not all of their content is uh, really great, good science content. You know, I don't know how many pet psychic shows they have now, but they've had more. <laughs> uh-huh. than, it's more than zero. So right, and and anything anything more than zero is is, is probably is a too much, right? <laughs> exactly. So, but yeah, it, it would have been a perfectly fine, maybe even good sci-fi movie. You know, mm-hmm. on the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, but uh, as it was, it was presented entirely as though it were true on a channel that often does have real documentaries. And I, I think that is, this is the deception of it. That's really annoying. Yeah, I agree. Right. Um, I mean, that one, and, and that was it. And, and, uh, and, and again, this, this is where we had the, um, the whole aquatic ape theory came up and I was asked a question about it and I, I knew something about it, but not a whole lot about it. And in fact, uh, maybe at some point soon we'll have a, we'll have an expert on to discuss the aquatic ape theory. But so it was, you know, it was one of those cases in which oftentimes, um, these pseudoscientific beliefs are couched in real science, you know, where they're actually, you know, the aquatic ape theory even though it's not terribly, you know, even though it doesn't hold a lot of water in the in the scientific community, um, it is a legitimate hypothesis. Uh, it's just not well regarded, and so so they they take you know an actual you know scientific idea and premise, and they sort of exaggerate it and and you know blow it up. And and you see the same thing, you know, in, in many many uh, you know paranormal and pseudoscientific beliefs, where you know I've had people tell me that psychic power must exist because scientists have found that we don't u- use you know ninety percent of our brains. Uh, now, of course, that's complete bullshit, and I've written about that, as has you know Steve Novella and Scott Lilienfeld and many other people. Um, but, well, but the the reason I bring up that example is that oftentimes people will use actual, you know, they'll appeal to science. They'll appeal to, well, you know, scientists have found XXX, and then they'll sort of go a leap and say, well, and therefore we have, you know, proof of mermaids, or therefore we have, you know, proof that, you know, plausible proof that that the psychic powers exist. And so oftentimes these beliefs uh, are, have little hooks in, in, in real science and appeals to real science, uh, and early, you know, scientific research. Um, so they, the, you know, the people that believe in these things, they they don't acknowledge that this is all wild speculation. They 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 like to sort of trot out these little factoids, uh, and that's exactly what what uh, what the documentary did. Yeah, exactly. And I, I would think, you know, while the aquatic ape theory is a real hypothesis that people have put out there, 
Um, it is everything I've read indicates that there's virtually nothing to substantiate it. So I right. don't. I, I, uh, it right. really would be incumbent. You know, we we should get an expert on the show to talk about it because there's a lot of details there that uh, could probably be very well explained by a paleontologist. Well, and, and the the other issue is that is that you know again for for many of the public who don't have a good grasp of, of of science and how science works, you know that well it's a real scientific hypothesis. Yeah, that that means nothing. Yeah. there are there are hundreds and thousands of real scientific hypotheses that have been discredited uh, from day one. So the the fact that you know scientists briefly considered this, <laughs> okay, and what you know, uh, you know, it, the, there's a massive catalog of discredited. Uh, scientific hypotheses or ones for which they're just it's not that they've been outright discredited they're just not good evidence for them we've talked before about how the creationists are looking for mckinley babimbe and other mm-hmm. uh and they'd love to find nessie because they believe that you know finding a a, a a mesozoic marine reptile or some kind of dinosaur alive today would uh somehow disprove evolution right but is there really anything better than maybe finding um, a mermaid, something that's half fish and half mammal? I mean, that's that would really put a, a kink in evolution. Uh, so. You would think. You would think. I mean, the same thing happened with with the chupacabra. I mean, you know, I, I write about in my in my chupacabra book. Uh, one of the most famous chupacabras ended up in the creationist museum, uh, allegedly as evidence that scientists were wrong. You know, scientists and evolutionists say that uh, say that the chupacabra can't exist, even though, of course, no one actually said that. And yet, here it is. You know, what else could they be wrong about? How about this evolution thing? Right. <laughs> it's just so so that, bizarre. Yeah. Monster dog. So today we're talking with Paolo Viscardi, who works at the Horniman Museum. He also has a blog called Zygoma, and uh, we'll put links to that in the show notes. You, uh, we got in touch with you because you've done several lectures about mermen and mermaids and monkey fish. Sure. Uh, and uh, we're talking today about mermaids um, and mermen uh, in, in regards to the Animal Planet documentary that was recent. Uh. Excuse me. Did I say documentary? Yeah. <laughs> Fakeumentary? I don't know Pseudo, what it is. <laughs> Pseudo-documentary. Mockumentary, surely. Mockumentary. <laughs> Yeah, I believe, you know, it's not quite Spinal Tap, but uh, I felt like I needed one afterwards, so. Oh, God, it was terrible. I, <laughs> I actually, I, I watched it specifically because of this interview. Um, I, I, I thought, right, I, I started watching it, um, and, and I got about five minutes, and I just thought, this is absolute rubbish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I cannot watch this. And, and you know, that's where I stood until uh, I, I agreed to come and do this. And uh, so I thought last night I'll have to watch it through, all the way through. And oh my God, it, my, my, my brain bleed. It was just diabolical. <laughs> Absolute rubbish. Yeah. Well, on behalf of Blake and Monster Talk, I apologize for making you watch that. Yeah. It's I, like, it's, it's, I wish it's you, a learning experience. I wish you could have that time back. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But that being said, that that allows us to uh, to delve into it. So uh, what, why don't we start with that? Yeah. Well, so well, actually, I wanted to say, how did you get involved with a science career first, and then we'll get into mermaids. Well, funnily enough, I always wanted to work in a museum. Um, so since I was four years old, I've wanted to be a curator in a museum. So uh, I kind of always thought about going down that route. So I studied science at school. I, and went to university, studied science there, did paleontology, uh, did biology, geology over in Bristol with Mike Benton and people like that. Um, then from there, I went and studied biomechanics uh, for my postgrad. And it kind of 
step by step all the way through I was doing projects which relate to museums so I could get used to using specimens and learning how museums worked and from there I went to work at the National Museum of Ireland just as a technician entry-level kind of job which is you know crap money but great experience did that kept working my way through really enjoyed it had an affinity for it so I did really well um, and uh, eventually a couple of jobs later and uh, I'm curator at the Horneman Museum um, and it's the best job in the world <laughs> So that, that's how I kind of came to this. But my, my real kind of background is in um, osteology. I, I work with bone a lot um, and I do a lot of identification, which is kind of how I got involved in this whole merman thing. And also things like you know, the Montauk monster and stuff like that. It's you know, it, or anything involving identification where you've got some bone, I, I'll kind of get involved in. Hmm. Okay. And, and so uh, did you have a pre-existing interest or fascination with mermaids before this or did it sort of uh, did it flourish once you were sort of within that area and Milo anyway? It's, it definitely flourished once I kind of had to do it for some work. So because uh, we, we have a merman uh, at the Horneman, we have a merman in our collections. And um, the first thing I ever really had to do with mermaids was to go and look at this this merman we have and identify what it was made of um what had been constructed from and that that kind of really got my interest going and from there it's kind of roller coasted i want to hear more about this merman so what (laughs) how did this come into your collection and and what did you what did you find out about it well we got it from the welcome collection which is uh quite a large um organization which is uh kind of it's it's a trust which was set up by Henry Welcome, who was a, a chemist, well, a pharmacist. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really cool guy. Collected millions of objects. It's just insane collector in the uh, early uh, part of the 20th century, late 19th century. Uh, and basically, he had he collected quite a few mermaids. And we've been working very closely with the Welcome Trust to track down other mermaids that came from that collection. We got it in 1982. Um, at the Horniman to replace a mermaid which we had in our collections but somehow vanished it, whether it got stolen or whether it swam away who knows but uh, that, that was basically why we got one uh, and it's it's a really cool specimen it's it's you know quite quite interesting to look at it's quite well made it's well put together so it, it kind of one of the questions that we get asked a lot is 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 it real and of course you know with any museum object as this uh, yes it's real in that it's a physical thing but no it's not real because it's not actually a mermaid it's, it's, it's put together it's not existential or <laughs> <laughs> it's not a hallucination it's not your imagination it's not an illusion it's real it's real it's absolutely physically real however that doesn't make it genuine true and i think that that's an important distinction to make <laughs> so i've noticed um if you look at uh, mermaids in classical art and you compare that with mermaids um that you're talking about like the sideshow mermaids yeah. Um, they look quite a bit different. What, what are what are some of the differences between what's described in legend and what these these um, I want to call them gaffs just because that's what I think of them as. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because most of the uh, mermaids that you have in sideshows um, originate from from Japan and kind of other parts of of the of East Asia. Um, they come from a very different idea of mermaids. They're, they're not really mermaids as we understand mermaids. They're, um, I can never pronounce this right, but I think they're ningyo, um, which are these kind of almost monkey-headed creatures uh, with a fish body, or sorry, with kind of, yeah, fish tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're nothing like the mermaids that we have, uh, which, you know, these beautiful maids and all the rest of it. So it's quite hard to, uh, to kind of put the two of them together and, and think, well, you know, 
this this is what we think of as the mermaid because you know it's really not a classical interpretation of the mermaid from from our perspective in the west mm-hmm. but nonetheless they're still mermaids i mean they're effectively still part of the same cultural concept of of a of a part fish and part primate let's say um and you know mermaids have been kicking around for donkey's years you know we're mm-hmm. talking uh, there there's uh, records of uh, a Babylonian uh, representation of, of half man, half fish, uh, of the god owns. Um, so that's, you know, you're looking at five 5,000 years ago, having depictions of these creatures. And, you know, the ancient Greeks, you had the Tritons and so on. Um, so you, you're having these, these kind of interpretations of, of these fish-human creatures going way back, you know, thousands of years. They're, they're older than kind of Christianity, way older. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a fascinating part of... of what looks like quite a broad social psyche. Cultures all around the world have, have some kind of concept of a, of a mermaid, so, or a mer, mer creature, which mm-hmm. yeah, part mammal, part fish. So it's, it's quite an interesting um, kind of idea, and, and it looks like there are lots of different routes into how these, these particular creatures have, have emerged from various different cultures. But I'm sure there are quite a few overlaps as well. Well, I was going to ask when I was when you're talking about that. I, I uh, attended the American Folklore Society's conference last year, and there was a really fascinating t- uh, discussion on selkies. Uh, and I'm wondering whether uh, whether when when people go to the museum and they see these things, is is it labeled a mermaid or merman, or is it just sort of like here is this you know aquatic you know half fish half human thing and and sort of people bring in their own cultural uh preconceptions and baggage to it so for example uh have you had anybody say is this a selkie instead of you know is this a mermaid no i think generally um at the museum we have a one labeled up as a japanese monkey fish <laughs> okay. um, that's not which, quite as romantic as mermaid but okay. it's not no it's really not um and i think that uh People generally bring, obviously there's some kind of baggage there because they'll look at it and say, that's not a mermaid, um, it's, a, it's a merman, or it's, it's some sort of weird creature which mm-hmm. is not a proper mermaid. But I think most people actually say, so that's what a mermaid looks like. Interesting. Because people come with a preconceived idea of mermaids, like watching The Little Mermaid or whatever else. And when they actually see a physical specimen, they think, oh, so that's what it's really like. Even though it's again, it's it's a gaff. It's it's something which has been constructed to look like something. But it's also it's, the credibility of the museum. I mean, it's, it's they're going they're going into a legitimate place with scholars and academics, and it's, this is being presented, and they're like, there it is. <laughs> you know, this is there. There's a. I'm just I'm just fascinated by the idea of of the authenticity and, and legitimacy that you and and the museums bring to it. You know, to the layperson. Well, that, that's funnily enough. That's why I got involved with it in the first place. Because uh, we had an interpretation, which was that it's a, it's a Japanese monkey fish. It's made from a monkey and a fish st- stuck together. That's it's how I make my monkey fish always. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> how, how most people do it. Um, so, so that was the kind of interpretation we had because that's what people wanted to know: how it is actually made. Is it real? Well, it's real, but it's it's made up of bits of other animals. Um, so I, I basically took a look at it to actually make sure that the facts which were being represented there were actually true, because no one had bothered. <laughs> um, people just assumed that that was the case. And mm-hmm. part of my research has been to, um, we, we got CAT scans done of the specimen and x-rays. Uh, we took some DNA samples as well, but unfortunately they didn't, uh, they, they weren't 
well preserved enough to actually yield anything useful. But um, from the CAT scans and from just you know, close examination, we're able to work out that there's no monkey in it at all. Um, it's it's just fish. It's fish jaws. It's fish tail. Wow. And then it's uh, papier-mâché. And it, I, I've looked at quite a few of these things now, and there's only a couple I've ever seen which look like they've been anywhere near a monkey, ever. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's actually quite interesting the way in which these things are constructed. And even ones which are particularly kind of realistic looking, and, and when you look at x-rays of them, they look like they have a skull in there, and they look like they have some kind of almost primate skull. And when you look more closely, you realize it's been carved out of wood. Hmm. So there are some quite interesting things going on there where I, I, I think um, this idea of a monkey fish has, has got really kind of ingrained as, as how these things were made. And I think that that comes uh, from the Fiji mermaid, uh, the you know, Barnum uh, mm-hmm. show. And that, that particular specimen before it went to Barnum uh, was checked out by um, some guys at the Royal College, of Phys- uh, Royal College of Surgeons in the UK, in London, in 1822. And um, when they studied it, they, they basically came to the conclusion that it had been made from some orangutan, some baboon, and some salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is kind of a lasting interpretation which people still use. People still fall back on this, it's a monkey and a fish stuck together. And looking, looking through their kind of um, interpretation, I'm, I'm not even t- entirely convinced that that's what it was made of in the first place. Because I think that they, they didn't have the same kind of technology available that we have. So they couldn't get an X-ray of it and they couldn't take a CT scan of it. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of make up your mind based on what the closest approximation you can think of is without destroying the specimen. And quite frankly, if someone's done a good job of putting this thing together, it's really hard to tell. Right. Well, it, it makes sense that, I mean, if, if, if Barnum's Fiji mermaid was uh, for many years and may still be, you know, the, the, if the analysis of that particular object was the most thorough and you, know, you, you, can, you can debate how th- thorough and accurate it was, then at least, it, at least it's something that, you know, scientists said. Uh, yeah. it, it leads to, you, can, you can see why that, you know, the, the public would latch on to that as opposed to, I mean, as opposed sure. to sort of you know anyone else, you know, what, yeah. what, what anyone else say? <laughs> so many, so many science questions have been answered once. So why revisit? But yeah, a lot of interesting things come when you do go back and revisit those uh, original hypotheses, oh, hypotheses, ideas. <laughs> Did you? Um, I, I, I know. I actually got to see a, a reconstruction of the Fiji mermaid, um, and it was much smaller uh, than I expected. So, on average, like, how many of these have you examined, or how big are they? Are you know? Are they-, they can vary quite a lot, actually. I've seen um, the biggest ones probably are a couple of meters long. Hmm. Um, wow. The smallest ones. So that's like forty be- feet, right? <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. I, I forget you guys are in, in the US and, and you don't work in the same thing. Yeah, you're looking at like six feet. Six feet, yeah. Bigger, I'm just bigger than six feet. Right. So just over. So they're they're pretty big, you know. Um, and then the. the Particularly big ones uh, that I'm aware of are in Leiden. There are some pretty big ones in the collections in Leiden. Um, but then there are the, most of the ones that you find are actually quite small. Um, so you're looking at maybe, I think the one we have in the museum uh, at the Horniman is 18 inches. Um, That's more like I've the size much, I've seen, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've seen smaller versions as well, um, like private collectors and so on. So, so it's quite a range. How old are these? I mean, like you said 1820s for the. Um the Barnum yeah. Fiji mermaid. Are these being created to fulfill a, a tourist need, or are these something that they were having local and and as part of their culture, and then we imported it 
to kind of both Europe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so really, what you what you're having is um, in in Japan. Obviously, Japan until I think around 1854 was a closed country. They only traded with Korea and uh, the, the Dutch. So, and and even then, they would only trade through particular specific ports um, like Nagasaki. So the, the actual limits of, on trade were, were quite quite big um, back then. And, and in Japan, you had the uh, Shinto, Shintoism tends to kind of uh, it, it's about the naturalistic spirits. It's hard to kind of describe them in you know terms which Westerners will fully get because mm-hmm. we don't really have a direct parallel in the West. But effectively, Shinto is about kind of um, acknowledging, recognizing, and, and kind of celebrating these naturalistic spirits. And the Ningyo were, were kind of naturalistic spirits, which you would often find um, kind of these, these constructions of in Shinto temples and shrines um, and going around in Mizumono carnivals. So they'd be kind of taken around and they'd assist in storytelling and kind of um, helping people get a, a kind of a context for, for these ideas which are going on around about Shintoism. So one of these, um, one of the earliest specimens that I've been aware of uh, came into uh, Nagasaki um, back in I think it was 1817 and that was one of the first which I'm aware of that that went to um, that was picked up by a Dutch guy so that went back to Leiden Uh, it's in Leiden now and and because he was Dutch and trading out of Nagasaki and and able to actually um, buy this thing because he had trading rights with Japan uh, it was one of the first kind of Japanese mermaids which actually got into mainstream Europe. Then uh, the Fiji mermaid that Barnum got his hands on, originally that came, uh, that came from outside of Japan, actually. I think it was purchased, um, ooh, where was it purchased? I can't remember off the top of my head where it was purchased, uh, but it was somewhere else in Southeast Asia. Um, but it looked like it had come across from Japan uh, in, with fishermen, basically. And they'd, they'd had it in their boat, whether it was as a kind of... Um, something to ward off uh, bad weather or, or storms. I think that's generally the kind of thing that you'd associate with, with this particular water spirit, storms and, and luck. Um, so I think it's probably come across from a Japanese fishing boat, been bought by someone, and then they sold it on to a guy called um, Samuel Barrett Eads, uh, who, who paid a huge sum of money for it and got himself in a lot of trouble. And there's a whole story there which is absolutely <laughs> amazing, fascinating and brilliant. Um, but but the long and short of it was that's how it got back to to England, um, and and it came via kind of Africa. And on its way through, uh, he showed it in Africa, and kind of newspaper articles started coming out of Africa in 1822 about this this amazing mermaid, which was, was so well made that people really took it as real. And so when it arrived in England, this is when the guys at the Royal College of Surgeons, um, what their name? Uh, oh God, I can't remember his name. William Clift. Um, William Clift and Sir Everard Home uh, took a look at this thing and, and basically said, yes, it's a fake. Uh, and, but they didn't report it until a bit later. And when they did, it was all very acrimonious and it was all got a bit horrible. But that, that's really kind of where, where the, the first big kind of Japanese mermaid made an impact in kind of Western culture. Um, and, you know, the, for a very short period of time before um, the, the guys at the Royal College of uh, Surgeons you know, published the actual description, it was taken as real, and it did incredible trade uh, in the Turf Coffee House in Piccadilly. As, of course, as soon as uh, they, they published saying it, it was made up out of bits of monkey and fish, no one wanted to go and see it because they thought they were having you know someone taking the mick basically. Right. Um, right. And it was after that that it kind of went to uh, went over to the states and, and got picked up by Barnum. 
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hey there, Monster Talkers. We'd like to introduce you to a new podcast you're going to love. Do you like to travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband, and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorn, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff. To Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking... Was it an accident? Or was it murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I, I I love hearing the history of these things because I've I've always found that uh, that oftentimes the looking at the historical context of these things it just it just it all fits together and you know for example I, I think of uh, around you know the, the time we're talking the mid, you know the mid eighteen hundreds and earlier when there was a strong interest not only in 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 England and Europe um, and certainly America about um, about Orientalism and there was a, this fascination with things that were exotic and you had people with their cabinets of curiosities. And this, you know, this is before, you know, this is before Burton was looking for the source of the Nile and all those sorts of things. So at, th- at that point in time, the world was a much bigger place in a way. And uh, people, you know, I, most people didn't really know whether there were, you know, mermaids out there or there was, you know, uh, dinosaurs in, in, uh, in, in the reaches of, of South, South America. So um, I don't know, I, that just always fascinates me is to, you know, it's easy to sort of look back in our modern times and sort of say, oh, well, you know, who, who might have thought this was real? You know, how ridiculous is this? But you go back, you know, 100, 150 years and uh, a lot of this stuff was, was actually fairly plausible to many people. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you talk about a time here when um, you know, this is before evolution as, as a theory had been formulated. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea of evolution was out there, but it wasn't 
through natural selection. It was not one, everyone was still guessing. So I, I know that um, uh, Barnum, uh, when he when he was showing the Fiji mermaid, kind of made made a bit of a show of this, um, and used used this kind of idea of, of things like okay, seahorses and and sorry, uh, fish and horses and seahorses as an intermediate. So this idea of intermediates in kind of a creationist way of thinking of in, intermediates, like half of this and half of this stuck together gives you this. Right. This, these sorts of ideas were being kind of used to tout the mermaids as being legitimate and real and, and kind of obviously filling a gap between fish and humans. So it's, it's one of these really kind of weird things because people just didn't have that, that basis for understanding things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it's absolutely fascinating. So the general public believed these were real animals. Some of them. Some of them. <laughs> Some of them. There's always there's always credulous people everywhere all the time. There always will be, I'm sure. But I think most people, um, a lot of people were taken in. A lot of people were taken in. There there are naturalists um, early on who were publishing on this thing, saying, "I've seen it. It looks real to me," um, and mm-hmm. they were being taken in. And I think it helps that with the with the what became the Fiji mermaid with, with Eads, um, he totally believed it was real himself. And I think that his complete buy-in to this thing really helped convince other people that it was real. And I think that that's something which kind of worked in his favour at first, but um, obviously kind of led to problems later on. But with uh, Barnum, I think, I think he probably, you know, knew from the outset that it was a complete fail. Oh, I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he just knew how to market. I mean, that man was a marketing marvel. Yeah, so, uh, for yeah. sure. So, so how were the actual mermaids uh, created in general? I mean, like you, you've you've kind of described it a little bit. Could you go into a little more detail? Yeah, and um, there's basically the uh, the kind of CT scans I've got of our mermaid, and I, I do kind of emphasize the fact that this is our mermaid, and it seems to me that there are a few kind of breeds, if you like. There, there seem to be the kind of older mermaids, which um, are generally standing upright, with their hands kind of held to the face in like a like a shrieking position, you know, the, the, the painting, the scream, the munch painting, they've got their hands in that kind of position and, and the face in that sort of pose. It looks very much like that picture, but with a fishtail. Um, and that kind, that's what the Fiji mermaid uh, that Barnum had looked like. And that's what uh, the Blomhoff one in Leiden, the earliest one that I was talking about earlier from Nagasaki, that's what that one's mounted like. So these earlier ones, and also ones which you find in Shinto shrines, which have got a good pedigree, um, they tend to be constructed in exactly that way. So um, th- there's a particular style there. Slightly later, you seem to be getting other ones with slightly different poses. So and there's, there's one particular type of pose, which I've seen uh, in a museum up in Buxton in the UK, where they've got the hand kind of he- like it's holding, a, should be holding a mirror and another hand holding what should be a, a hairbrush probably. Hmm. Um, and this one also, it, it's very similar in style to the, the kind of um, shriek one, the, the scream ones. Mm-hmm. But, they're not the same. They're slightly different. And I've seen x-rays of, of kind of both types, of, of the kind of the older, you know, the screaming type one and this, uh, the Buxton one um, with the kind of combing the hair. And, you know, they're made in slightly somewhat different ways, but there are a lot of similarities. Uh, the one we have at, the, at our museum is probably even more recent. It's probably, um, I'd guess it was probably from the 1850s or 60s. Um, and that seems to be made... In a more, it's, it's the kind that you see most commonly, where they're kind of, kind of down on their on their elbows and lying flat, so they're easy to kind of mount. I'm sure you've probably seen that kind around mm-hmm. in uh, in kind of gaffs and so on. Right. And it's that kind which is most common, 
they're the ones which I've seen most of. They're the ones which kind of you look online for, for kind of Fiji mermaids, and that's the kind which you see most frequently. Um, and that kind, you know, they, they they do seem to be made in a much more kind of um, I don't know, uh, uniform way. They're not all identical by any stretch of the imagination, but they're all made in very, very, very similar styles. And the X-rays and CT scans of that kind of I can talk about with a lot more confidence because that's what we've got, but I can kind of touch on the other ones. So um, the merman we have has basically got a, a kind of a, a little bit of wooden frame uh, which kind of supports the shoulders. So there's like a little triangle of wood with a piece of wood nailed across to make the shoulders, and that makes the kind of torso and shoulder area. Over that, there's been some sort of padding material and then a layer of clay. Um, further kind of down, there, there's this big, long piece of metal, uh, a piece of um, I don't know, iron rod, basically. It looks like it's made of twisted, uh, twisted iron. And that's kind of bent in a slight S shape. And that's what the, uh, the kind of basis of the tail is, is kind of held together with. So that goes down to another piece of wood which fills up the form at the very tip of the tail. And then there's been more kind of padding put around that and then a layer of clay to build up the kind of shape and breadth of the body. And then more padding to make sure it fits well inside the actual um, fishtail. So the fishtail, it's not just the tail of the fish, it's actually the full body of the fish that's been cut off around the gills. So if you get a fish, get a really sharp knife and cut right around the, uh, the opercular um, slit, you basically take the head off and you're left with this long fish body. The fins are then taken off, except for the fin along the, the dorsal fin, the one along the back. Um, and then effectively it must have been dried um, probably kind of fairly slowly and, and with maybe something inside it just to help it dry out effectively and then this kind of um, clay part of the body was slipped inside the tail and kind of padded out to make sure it fitted in there properly once it was dry and then papier-mâché was built up over the top and the head is, is kind of really weird because it's um, it's basically on a stick so that there's this kind of this triangular wooden frame which holds the shoulders also holds the neck which is just it's just literally there's a little kind of notch cut into it and this thing's been pushed in and held in with a couple of pegs and at the top of this piece of wood which goes up to make the neck there's a hole and effectively someone's put a piece of uh, string through that and then wrapped it around a few times so they've got a kind of big bundle a big round bundle at the top and then over that they've put a little bit of clay and then papier-mâché, which holds the fish jaws. And then all of the features have been carefully kind of pushed and sculpted in. So the whole thing actually comes together really nicely. It actually looks a single hole because all of the kind of modelling and papier-mâché work that's been done on it has been done when everything's been put together. So it's obvious where the joins are, what they needed to do to actually make them work. It's, it's actually been really nicely done. And you can see that they must have really known what they're doing and must have done it quite a lot before um, to get such a kind of good quality... Uh, finish on the whole thing it's 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 quite remarkable how much detail there is in it well, I was gonna say, is there an outer lacquer or any kind of sealer placed on it yeah well we thought there was um but actually it doesn't seem to be anything much there around the actual join between the kind of fish and the uh, the kind of upper t the, t the torso um there is some kind of um sealant been used it's you know i'm not sure what it is because it's really really actually hard to detect it could just be uh, fish glue or something along those lines which has had a bit of pigment added to it and painted on but that's something which um, we probably need to test 
you'd asked you you talked some about the the workmanship and the craftsmanship of these things. Um, and I've seen several myself, and I haven't seen your specimen. Although the next time I'm in your area, I'll be definitely be going to see yours there. I point in the direction of some photos and the CT scan and the X-rays, um, so you can have a look for all of that stuff yourself. Great, great. Well, what I was curious about was, was the, did the um, I mean, obviously these were these were done by um, people with some. Uh, you know, quasi taxidermy experience, depending on how you want to, depending on how much actually animals involved, and I'm I'm wondering about about the mermaid makers. I mean, did they did they specialize in mermaids? Uh, in which, or you know, for example, have you have you identified mermaid makers who also made uh, other other gaffed animals like uh, wolpertingers or uh, or uh, you know jackalopes or things like that? I mean, obviously not those, but something like that. Or what's what's the status on that? <laughs> I think, um, again, I think the Japanese ones um, have been made by probably fishermen, at least mm. at the outset, because um, obviously, you know, they've got easy access to loads of fish. Simple. Right. I mean, it's straightforward. And it's something you can do while you're not fishing. If you're on a boat, you can still do it if you're kind of at home and you're waiting for, for the tide to go in or whatever. Um, there are things you can be doing like that. I don't think that there's necessarily um, a kind of someone making this as a, as a kind of profession or as, as a main kind of way of earning a living. I, I don't mm -hmm. think they really took on that thing. Maybe later on when um, the Fiji mermaid had kind of generated so much hype in, in the Western world that there was actually a, an active demand for these right. things from Japan. Um, I think at that point, because every museum had to have one of these things after the Fiji mermaid was kind of out and about and on show, uh, maybe then some kind of small workshops were established and, and people actually started producing these in a more kind of mass production kind of a way. And that, that would fit with the fact that you see a lot of the same sorts of um, sculpting, posing, and um, kind of techniques used for, for a lot of these kind of later Fiji mermaids, especially the eyes. Um, that's a really common mm -hmm. feature. It's that they look like they've got an eye which has been pressed in and then whatever was pressed in has either fallen out or was only pressed in. So mm -hmm. they don't actually have eyes as such. They just have... A, couple of concentric rings which have been kind of pushed in and that that's something that you see kind of in absolutely all of the later fiji mermaids and that's something i'd quite like to actually take a look at is measuring the size of that to see if it's and, and the actual impression made to see if the same tool has been made to make all of those or if it's something else which is actually doing that so mm -hmm. there's one for the future but um I think the earlier ones probably were just being made by people for fun. And mm -hmm. you don't really get many kind of um, like uh, gaff animals being produced. But I, in the Shinto shrines, I've seen various different sorts of, of um, kind of oni, of these kind of demon-y, uh, spirity things. So some of them have got wings and chicken feet and kind of human faces. And some of them just look like, kind of short little ugly people and there are lots of kind of different sorts out there so i think that the skills that were being used to make the, the kind of mermaid ones the ningyo uh, were probably the same skills being used to make all of those and probably being made by the same people as well okay and and just a quick follow-up so how many um how many out there uh, how many of these uh, obviously they're still to this day, you can find recently made mermaids and, and gaffs and things like that, Fiji mermaids on eBay. But um, in terms of like the, you know, say pre-1900 or so, uh, how, many, how many Fiji mermaids are, or, you know, or mermaids are out there? Are we talking dozens or hundreds or thousands? I, I would say probably hundreds. Mm -hmm. um, I, 
I've not been working on these for you know for a huge length of time. It's only been the last eighteen months or so, um, and in that time, I've kind of seen quite a few. Uh, I've seen a few in the flesh. I've seen, as it were, um, I've seen loads online, um, and. Every time I kind of go to give a talk somewhere, someone has a story about one somewhere that they've seen either as a child or that they know about now. And in fact, there are people who I've kind of spoken to who have actually turned up with mermaids. So there are actually quite a few of them out there. And, and you'd be surprised in the number of places that actually have these things. So um, it's... I, the trouble is there's no kind of national register uh, or, or kind of global register of, of mermaids. And a lot of the time people have these things at home. They don't really... You know, in their own personal cabinets of curiosity or in the mm. loft. Was, you know, their parents had it and they didn't really want it. They, they thought it was ugly and chucked it in the loft and never thought about it again. So there must be loads of them out there. The fact that there have been so many coming to light just in the short time that I've been kind of working on this um, it suggests that there are quite a few. Well, I, would, I, I, I and Monster Talk Podcast would be, would be happy to support a national or international mermaid registry. I think it would be <laughs> a great idea. I really do. <laughs> It would be really cool. Yeah, I, I think. Um, I don't know. They're hard to track, though, aren't they? So they're, hard to they're track. slippery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would well, start yeah, looking in Finland. So, all right. <laughs> That's awful. It was terrible. It was terrible. All right. So apparently, there was some research published in the now defunct ISC journal that suggested that dugongs were responsible for many early mermaid reports. How likely do you find that? Do you think that's a credible claim? Because I've heard that before, not just in the journal. I think there's probably more to it than just dugongs, but I think actually it's not a bad claim. Um, I've seen examples of uh, mermaids which have been actually made out of dugongs, uh, where there's been a bit of cord tied around the neck uh, and constricted to make a more kind of human rounded head. Mm. Um, and basically they're dried dugongs with the, with the kind of, uh, fins, the, the the front flippers, posed in, in a more arm-like way, and they've been kind of draped with crucifixes. This is more of a BBW uh, mermaid, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but these 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 things were kind of early nineteenth century. So, in fact, no, no, early twentieth century. I, I lie, early twentieth century. Um, so, you know, th- they've certainly been used in that way to show kind of foreign fishermen, sorry, um, foreign kind of sailors, explorers or whatever, uh, these mermaids. And, you know, whether or not it's been done by local people purely to kind of you know, fool Westerners or if it's done for other reasons, whether it's kind of, um, you know, some sort of cultural reason, like with the Japanese mermaids, I'm not sure. I don't know enough about it. And I, I'd hate to say I knew something for certain if I really didn't. But um, it seems seems pretty reasonable that dugongs and, and certainly manatees uh, would have a place in, in kind of the stories of mermaids and of course stellar sea cows. Um, so there are reports of uh, sailors killing and eating um, mermaids off the coast of Southeast Asia, um, reporting that they taste like veal. Apparently, mermaids taste like veal. Um, I, I've also heard reports <laughs> that dugongs taste like veal. So you know, if you're in Southeast Asia, which is where you get dugongs. And it tastes like veal. There's a good chance that it's uh, a mermaid um, or, or a dugong, or the two are interchangeable. <laughs> or, or, or doesn't really matter as long as you have some hot sauce on it. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, totally. So, well, I, the other, the other thing is that in um, uh, kind of west coast of Africa, uh, the manatee gets mistaken. Well, not not mistaken for, but gets called. Uh, referred to using the same terminology as mermaids. Mm-hmm. So there's there's uh, the mammiwata uh, kind of 
goddess who is uh, basically a mermaid. She's fish lower half and, and human upper half. Um, and she's referred to as Mammy Water, and the manatees are also referred to as Mammy Water. So the actual same word is used to describe manatees and a mermaid. So you can kind of see that, you know, that there are pretty clear links there. Mm-hmm. Mix of outright myth, uh, misidentification, and then outright fakery uh, yeah. to, to kind of combine all with this one nomenclature. I think this is actually a really interesting point because the, the name mermaid come, is much older than our kind of knowledge of taxonomy. You've got sailors who aren't necessarily the best kind of educated people, especially we're talking here about like the 19th, 18th and 19th centuries, mm-hmm. going around the world, encountering large marine mammals that they're not familiar with, they've you know, never seen before. And they don't have a word for them, but they do have a word for mermaids. And if these things are close enough, if there are enough characteristics that you can say, well, maybe that's what a mermaid looks like, then you can start to see why people would start assigning the name mermaid to other things that they find, which don't quite fit the preconceived ideas of what a mermaid is, but are close enough to actually justify the term. And when you look at something like a manatee or a dugong, they're not like seals, they're not like dolphins, they, they do look different they, because of the way which they behave, they have these quite long um, flippers at the front, which are actually they kind of walk along the seabed with when they're kind of feeding so they, they don't really swim in the same way that, that other marine mammals do so you know, if you're a sailor and you're used to seeing things like dolphins and seals, when you see something like a dugong or a manatee, which behaves in a totally different way and you know, they, they kind of they, they have a profile in the water a lot more like a human when they're upright because they can do that. Um, so you can kind of see why they might start saying, ah, oh, so that's what a mermaid looks like. Mm-hmm. And certainly I have seen some um, old illustrations. I, I ought to track it down. I think it's from, in fact, yeah, no, I'll need to track down how old it is, but it's, it's pretty old, probably 19, uh, no, probably 16th, 17th century. And it represents a mermaid with a dog's head, which basically looks very much like a dugong or a manatee, especially a manatee with that kind of um, cleft uh, upper palate and you know, the, the general kind of appearance of a, of a mm-hmm. muzzle. Um, so effectively, it looks like the mermaid changes to fit what people have actually seen. But the actual idea of a mermaid is kind of still there. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's an excellent point about, you know, the, the nomenclature and what people are calling it. I mean, for you have to remember that, as you point out, with, with many of these fishermen who are, you know, out to sea, you know, they, it, to them it's not an important distinction whether what they saw is technically in every respect the classical mermaid. That's, that's irrelevant. They're, it's the closest thing they can have. And so a, a lot of times when, when you look at cryptozoological research, people talk about uh, the, these older stories of either, you know, Native Americans talking about uh, describing something like a wild man in the woods as Bigfoot or a lake monster or something like that. Or, or for example, you know, coming back to mermaids. And they, a lot of times people will sort of put this undue credibility on on um, on 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 these people and say, well, look, well, th- this is crazy. You know, a, a fisherman they would they would recognize a, a, you know a, a dugong or a manatee when they saw one, and some and in you know in a way, number one, that's not necessarily true, and number two, even if it was true, um, you know, just be, you know, there's no reason that why they wouldn't call it a mermaid, even if that even if they're not using the word in the same way that that we would you know use it today. Yeah, totally. 
I, I do think that's that's one of the things that we take for granted um, is this idea of, of quite fixed names. But uh, before 17, uh, 1758, before Linnaeus really kind of nailed the whole nomenclature thing, there's so much variability out there on what things were named. There was so little convergence on a single name for something. The idea of just calling something a mermaid, it's absolutely fine. It's, you know, the daddy long legs, okay? Um, to me, a daddy long legs is a crane fly, because that's what we call daddy long legs. That's what we call crane flies in the UK. We call them daddy long legs. Mm -hmm. um, in the States, I believe it's, you know, it's a spider. Well, it's, also, it's interesting, because even in the States, it's a spider, and it's also a, an animal called the harvester. So right, in two different parts of the country, the same word means something totally different. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, these terms, they get used um, by people. And everyone who they talk to knows what they mean. So if mm. you're a sailor on a boat and you say a mermaid, it might mean a dugong. It might mean a manatee. It might mean a seal. It might mean a, a lady who's in the water with a fishtail. But it always the means is, delicious. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> no, but but that's that's again. I just think it's an important part to make because that's something that's a, that's a, that's sort of a nuance in all this that that often is, is it, people don't get is that is that people use different words in different ways and you can't necessarily you know apply modern terminologies to to you know what somebody called something 150 years ago. True. You just can't. Totally. Totally. You can, but you can, you know, it, it won't mean anything. Right. <laughs> and right. this is the problem. And I think there's a lot of this kind of, a lot of this happens a lot of the time. Um, it, it's kind of a misunderstanding. A lot of things get conflated. A lot of things get unnecessarily separated. And, you know, it, it, trying to find understanding of, of something which is in a different culture, not because of space, but because of time, it can be quite difficult because we tend to assume that if it's in the same place, it's treated in the same way, even though it's, quite quite clearly distinct historically and for some things we you know we wouldn't think twice about that you know for some things you'd simply know that you know well people weren't driving cars 200 years ago you, would, you wouldn't assume them to be but when you talk about things like terminology you just assume that they're using the same terms in the same way and you know, mm -hmm. there's no reason for them to be everything everything changes you know everything evolves that we, we kind of do and, and engage with our society, our technology, everything changes all the time. So we need to take that into consideration when we're looking at these sorts of questions. You mentioned earlier that there was a really fascinating story about the guy who brought the, uh, the first mermaid to England, but it was yeah. too, too long to tell. Is that something that's written down somewhere you could give us a reference so I could put in the show notes? Yeah, there is an absolutely awesome book um, called The Fiji Mermaid and Other... Um, Unnatural Curiosities. I think that's the, the term. I'll, nice. I'll double check that reference. But um, it's a fantastic book. It's by Jan or Bondison. That's the one. Jan yeah. Bondison. Yeah. Yeah. I, I met him. I, I I have that book. It's it is it is awesome. It sounds great. It's a fantastic book. And I'll put the, a link. Uh, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let, let's bring this back to what, what we began with, which is uh, the the recent pseudo faux documentary travesty. <laughs> Uh, of of uh, mermaids that aired on the Animal Planet. Um, so what was uh, you said? You you've now seen it, unfortunately, due to you know oh. our <laughs> your appearance here. So uh, what's your what's your take on it now that you uh, now that you're someone who actually uh, a person who who actually does have some expertise in this? Um, credible or not? Oh my! You've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call it I'm the sorry. Blair the Blair Fish Project. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. that's a good one. <laughs> It, uh, it's just atrocious. Um, I, I wouldn't have minded so much, but 
when you're watching something which is supposed to be a documentary, even if you know that you've got to take it tongue in cheek because there are elements of it which are clearly made up, mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you get your facts right where the facts are actually referred to. So th- there was one bit, one, one of the earliest bits, um, where one of the, the scientists um, says, the whales have been bleeding from their ears. And I just thought to myself, whales don't have external ears. How can they bleed from, from their ears when they don't have external ears? It, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely stupid. It, clearly, the researchers have not done any research. It's just... Well, quite frankly, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, but it's bollocks. It uh, is yeah, utter you, you can say bollocks. that here because we don't know what it means. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all right. It is bollocks. Okay? Bloody bollocks. Bloody bollocks. <laughs> it, it's just, oh. And that, that was a, a really bad start. <laughs> a really bad start. And then, then they go into the aquatic ape hypothesis. And, you know, it's just the way it's presented because of the whole structure of the documentary, because they don't start with a disclaimer saying, this is all made up stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't you can't go in thinking oh well that's okay I can suspend my disbelief and just you know enjoy it for what it is because they don't actually have that disclaimer at the outset they they actually start it talking about you know conspiracy theories it just uh, I just find it sickening because there's this really really bad science the aquatic ape hypothesis is is they refer to it as the aquatic ape theory and that made me really angry because it's not a theory it is a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, you know, it's this this subtlety of distinction between what a scientific theory is and what a scientific hypothesis is, which normally comes up when we talk about evolution and how evolution is a theory because it right. has good evidence and it has been yeah, you know, there is no reason that we've ever found to to not accept it as being the best explanation available. Whereas the aquatic ape hypothesis is a hypothesis; it's an idea. It was it was kind of. A, something which someone made up and thought, oh, this is quite interesting. Let's see, let's cherry pick bits of information to try to make it fit this hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. And they managed to cherry pick some bits of information. But as soon as you start actually looking at it in any kind of structured or systematic way, all of the evidence just evaporates. <laughs> all of the claims made just, just turn into nothing because you have to actually look at all the information in, in a much more kind of comprehensive way. You need a meta-analysis of the data. You need to say, well, okay, if you're assuming that, that, Losing your body hair um, makes you it, it's something that is associated with living in the water, then you, you need to kind of completely discount things like naked mole rats and you know, various other animals which have, have lost their body hair, mammals have lost their body hair, and you need to completely discount all the marine mammals which keep their body hair, which includes the seals, polar bears it's only oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's actually only a couple of groups of uh, marine mammal or, or mammal which have any kind of aquatic lifestyle who have actually lost their body hair so it's you know it's just it's just nonsense you know it's it's these these little kind of ideas and yeah it's a nice idea there's no reason why you shouldn't explore the hypothesis that's what you know science is about testing hypotheses but the trouble is as soon as you realize that hypothesis is dead you need to bloody drop it you Mm -hmm. can't keep pounding away at the old crappy hypotheses because you're never going to learn anything the idea is to adapt them develop them come up with a new one which actually accounts for the facts better well and mm-hmm. so we, we have yeah. learned something we've, we've learned that unlike mermaids the writers didn't spend any time in schools <laughs> oh yeah oh my god yeah. it took yeah. a second it's terrible shocking shocking <laughs> 
Uh, but yeah, yeah. I, I think everybody who's seen it just agrees it's a complete travesty. Uh, unless, and again, unless you, if you want to just, if you just want to say up front that this is, you know, another, another fictional, um, you know, story, no more or less credible than Star Wars Jurassic Park, then fine. But but don't 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 put in this this you know these tidbits they, they sprinkle in a few actual experts a few scientific terms, and and they just let it go. I I, I think it's disgusting. Yeah, I totally agree. It's... I I, am, I think I'm gonna actually title the episode the Blair Fish Project. I think I'll do that. So <laughs> that's a good idea. Seriously, <laughs> I really like that description. It's it's nice. Very very nice. Uh, that, that whole thing, just I literally, after watching it, I, I was kind of speechless very briefly. My, my <laughs> would say very, very briefly, because I then got a massive rant about something. I actually have a list here of uh, things I wrote down so I didn't have to like shout at the, at the screen. I did the I same thing. I actually I have a text document uh, on my laptop where I was just writing down things that were making me mad. <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly what I did. It's yeah, just it's, therapy. It's just therapy yeah. is all it is. Well, it's better than shouting. Yeah, it, probably. <laughs> or ranting on the internet. But here we are with a podcast. So, On most of our episodes, we try to always ask our guest um, a question as a closer. And that is, what's your favorite monster? Uh, I like the Montauk monster. Really? <laughs> because it's, it's a raccoon. You know, that's, I, I like it because I like raccoons. Right. Um, no, it, it, like- it's lost all its hair, so it was adapted for life in the water? Is that... <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah, good, good call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I like it because um, at one point I, I, I was studying taphonomy, and I, I like the way um, taphonomy is basically the study of how you go from a living animal um, to a fossil. By which I mean you have a living animal which dies, decomposes, becomes fossilized. And then it gets dug up by someone. Mm-hmm. It's that whole process. We, we've actually Ben and I are uh, have been looking for a guest to come on and talk about taphonomy as a, as a research field because uh, it ties into so many monster topics. Like the monster, the Montauk monster is a good one. Uh, animal mutilations and how that can actually be explained by normal uh, decomposition processes. Absolutely. So, but the Montauk monster. So, uh, in case any of our listeners don't know what that is. Uh, that was a hairless animal that washed up on, uh, is it Montauk, New Jersey? Yeah, yeah. well, there were, there were several, actually. There's been at least three Montauk monsters. Uh, most of them were, were raccoons, as, as he pointed out. Yeah, yeah. No, all the Montauk monsters I've seen have been raccoons. There have been other things on the Montauk monster website um, yes. where, where stuff has been sent in from other places. So there was a mink from Canada, which was losing. I, it's got a name that I cannot begin to pronounce no, no i actually yeah i wrote i wrote about that yeah, yeah absolutely yeah that one can you pronounce it um i can if i go look at my article i think i gave it a phonetic pronunciation uh, <laughs> that's the way to do it i did manage it once in a talk i did because I, I my, my mermaid talk i kind of um add into other things as well because it's about identification because that's what i like I, i'm interested in identification so um that was uh, that was a nice one to put in there. So there's that one, and there's the uh, there's the Blue Hills Horror. Um, that was another nice one where you've got a sloth, which has basically right. lost its fur through decomposition. I, I just find it really interesting because uh, you know, taphonomic processes are, are fascinating. They're, they're something which you know, I spent a bit of time you know, researching and studying and, and doing some experiments on, and, and it, it's quite quite a fascinating topic. Really, is a bit rusty, but it's. Uh, yeah, anything which gives me a chance to kind of go back through some of the literature is always nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you very much for having me along. It's been really good fun. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to this episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard Blake Smith and Ben Radford, 
interview Paolo Viscardi about mermaids. A few announcements. If you're attending DragonCon this year, you might be interested in Ben Radford's Paranormal Investigation Workshop, which will be on Thursday evening, August 30th. Thursday evening, August 30th is also the time of the Atlanta Skeptics Annual Star Party, the, the proceeds of which will go to fight cancer. The bad astronomer Phil Plate, George Schwab, Nicole Giliucci, and others will be there. I will be there. I hope you can make it. Or to Ben's things. Hey, even if you don't want to be there at the star party or want to be there and can't be there, you can still donate to Fight Cancer in the name of Jeff Medkeff by going to the AtlantaSkeptics.com website forward slash star party. That's AtlantaSkeptics.com forward slash star party. Thanks to David Rodriguez and Robert Smith for their donations to the Monster Talk Transcription Project. We've got several new episodes transcribed and up online now. So maybe some of our Wikipedia volunteers in the audience could link to our show notes to various monster topics where appropriate. If you'd like to contribute to our project, go to monstertalk.org and click the donate button. We appreciate your support. Monster Talk's produced with the support of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions in this show are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect those views of Skeptic Magazine or of the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk theme music's by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.